This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The slow growth of the economy since the recession, as well as our reliance on new technologies, have some people concerned about the future of change and growth here in the U.S. and in other parts around the globe. In decades past, our restlessness has been a factor in growth, but maybe Americans aren't as willing to do so right now. Tyler Cowan holds a chair in economics at George Mason University. He's also a dean at the Mercatus Center, and he also writes about uh, economics in a wide range of publications. He addresses, though, this specific problem uh, in his new book called The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream. And Tyler joins us on the phone right now. Tyler, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. Great to have you, sir. Uh, so one of the concerns is this need that, that people have for security in our society? Yes. American dynamism has been declining for several decades. We now have a society where we're afraid to let our children play outside. We medicate ourselves at much higher rates. We actually hold jobs for longer periods of time. We move across state lines at much, much lower rates than before. Even our productivity growth is down. So this is a kind of national malaise affecting this country. And that's something that, as you mentioned about, that that was a core ingredient to our country as, as we were really developing ourselves back into the 1700s, correct? That's correct. Even up through the 1980s and 90s, this country was much more dynamic than it is today. There's this myth that we're so wonderfully innovative with tech, and we have done some very nice things. But a lot of those, they actually they improve your leisure time. They make it easier for you to goof off at work and easier just to stay at home and have things sent to you or entertain yourself with the Internet. So it's not actually making our economy that much productive so far. So, so is it the tech revolution that really is the driving force behind this shift, or were there other factors as well to play in? Some of it is tech, but I think some of it is just history. So in this country, the 1960s and 70s, they were so chaotic. People felt alienated. Crime levels were so high. People decided, well, you know, never again for this, which, which is fine. We improved this country a lot, but we also went too far in slowing down change, making it harder to build infrastructure, put in new apartment buildings. Uh, this is the era of NIMBY, not in my backyard. <laughs> well, then let me ask you this, then. Is, is this a correctable problem at this point, or are we at a, at a point where we are going to be dealing with this as a piece to our society for many years to come? For many years to come. I think it will be corrected in the sense that eventually we will fail and it will fall apart. That's a kind of correction. But I don't think we can just wake up and decide to go back to, say, the dynamism of the America of 50 years ago. We're too locked in. What do you think, then, the American dream is today? The American dream is strongest for immigrants, and they are our least complacent class. They're the most dynamic, in some ways, actually, you know, neurotic, and uh, striving and unhappy and building and grasping. And I think that's wonderful. And I think, actually, you know, parts of Silicon Valley are not so complacent. Uh, but overall, the American dream has been a life with not so much change, where you get to keep what you feel is yours. And I feel we can do better than that. 
And obviously, you just mentioned a, a group of people that are going through a kind of a transitional period right now in this country uh, with the travel ban that is in place. And obviously, that that if we see that continue for, for quite some time, that's going to have an impact on a lot of those people. Yes, you know, I'm very much against the travel ban. But what I find heartening is how much weaker the final version of the ban is compared to what a lot of people in the White House had in mind. So I'm slightly optimistic on that, at least relative to what I had been fearing. How much do, do uh, th- does this push for uh, kind of nationalism play into the potential issues of, of growth here in, in the United States, both personally and when you think about the, uh, the economy as a whole in general? Well, it's talk about making America great again. It's uh, very much looking to the past. When Trump talks about infrastructure, the first thing he mentions typically is repairing roads, bridges, and tunnels. And, you know, I'm all for that. But I don't think it should be the centerpiece of the vision. That's very 1930s. It's not even 1980s. I think we should think more about really doing education right and building a smart grid and what we're going to do in space and biomedicine. Uh, It's a very backward-looking vision. It does seem, though, and and, and when, I, when I was going through your book and, and preparing some questions for you, the one thing that I, I wanted to bring up was the idea of entrepreneurship. And seemingly this is something that is talked about a lot as a growing area. Uh, you know, obviously it's, it's, an, it's an arena where you have the potential for just as much uh, failure as success, maybe even more failure than success. Uh, but it is still it does fall into that dynamism that, that you refer to. So if we have a an increasing level of entrepreneurship in this country, does that eat away a little bit at that complacency? Well, if we only did, keep in mind that startups as a percentage of total businesses have been declining every decade since the 1980s. Right. Also keep in mind, immigrants start new businesses as a rate twice as high as native-born Americans. So we're ailing a bit on that one. I wouldn't say all of our creativity is gone, but the picture is not as rosy as many people think. So then when you think about this from an economic uh, issue, the the U.S. economy then, what what do we need to see? What do we need to kind of turn the page on this and and, and start to see that uh, that dynamism again and and that growth and that want to, you know, maybe pick up and move for a new job halfway across the country? Well, there are plenty of laws and regulations I would change. And in many parts of the economy, I'd have less regulation, and I'd make it easier for people, say, to put up a new apartment block in San Francisco or parts of New York City. But I think the fundamental issue is a psychological one. That is, why are we not so interested in those kinds of changes? And uh, in part, we believe we can continue as we had been more or less forever. And what I'm trying to do with my book is give people a greater sense of urgency. So people feel like if they are comfortable right now in their minds, then they have exactly what they want. That's right. But we're eating into the seed capital for future generations. So if we just stop being creative at some point, you know, we can't pay all the bills anymore. How much? I mean, technology has obviously helped us out uh, quite a bit, but but. As you've kind of alluded to, there's a degree to which technology has actually made this problem worse, correct? Sure. So people do Netflix at home. Uh, They do streaming. They just sit there. Amazon delivers packages. Uber will deliver your food. Uh, These are great conveniences. I don't think the point is to criticize them. I think the point is when so many of your innovations are directed only toward convenience 
and not enough toward you know production and dynamism and reshaping your physical environment and building the next grand vision, your society will become a bit sleepy and complacent. If we are able to find a way to rebuild, and again, thinking from the economic perspective, if we're able to find a way to rebuild uh, the manufacturing sector here in the United States, does that help the mindset a little bit? Well, I would stress the manufacturing sector in terms of output pretty much has been rising every year except for the recession. Contrary to what you hear, what's gone down are manufacturing jobs and that's because of automation. Yeah. So I don't think there's any way to bring those jobs back. But the sector itself is doing fine. Tyler, In a sense, that makes it harder. Right. right. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Tyler Cowan joins us. He is the author of the book, The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you're not able to get to your phone, you're uh, more than welcome to send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I guess it also feels a little bit like, you know, I mean, people seemingly have busier lives uh, than, than we've had at, at any point in the last 20, 30 years, especially, you know, people with kids. Uh, but it, that maybe they don't want to take the time to do to do the searching or they feel more reliant on some of the tools, uh, the newer, more effective tools that we have for search to be able to do that? Well, I draw a distinction in the book between physical space and information space. And we're much, much busier in information space, you know, managing our email, being on Facebook, dealing with what our smartphone sends our way. Mm-hmm. And again, that can be useful, but we're so over-specializing in this one part of life and so stagnant in terms of the other parts, like building a you know better and brighter nation, improving our infrastructure, having some grand project for the future, uh, I think there's a very dangerous imbalance. How does this problem, though, relate to the different uh, economic structures in this country, like the people that are the haves and the have-nots, basically? Well, I think you see complacency at all levels, though it takes very different forms. So the haves tend to think, well, everything's fine. They have a lot of criticisms about social justice, but they don't actually see it as so urgent the way, say, Americans did in the 1960s. Uh, the have-nots are typically not so content, of course, uh, but they tend to live with their parents for many more years than used to be the case. They're less interested, say, in buying cars or owning homes. Yeah. Uh, they move much less for jobs. They're more likely to take opiates, for instance, or smoke marijuana, drugs that are soporific in a way. They're more likely to seek being on disability, even if they're not actually you know, fully disabled. So I think they, too, in their own way, are somewhat of a complacent class. We're talking with Tyler Cowan, the uh, author of the book, The Complacent Class. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. You brought up that uh, the, the, the not-in-my-backyard uh, and you actually have uh, several other ones to kind of go along with it as well, one of which I, I found interesting, and, and obviously we're just kind of coming off of that, not in my election year, so NIMI, N-I-M-E-Y, uh, which obviously that, that plays into a, a problem that uh, we have with complacency with our government. Midterms, midterm elections are less than two years away. People in D.C. are already gaming it, and I am speaking from about two miles away from our nation's capital. It makes it harder to change things. Uh, Politics is more polarized, 
and people now have the sense, you know, no voter should ever have to take much of a loss on anything at all. What do you think the the impact of this past election and you talk about the mindset with so many more people out there protesting a variety of different elements of things that are going on? How how does that impact what you're talking about right here? Well, I think that's healthy. I don't agree with everything or maybe not even most things the protesters are calling for, but I'm happy to see it. There's been too long a time in this country where we have not had a healthy tradition of protest. We've bureaucratized our rebellion, so to speak. It's much harder to get the permits and to be in the spaces you want to be in. Uh, so I'm hopeful this is you know, a slight reemergence of political dynamism, at least. And that's that's another uh, one that you bring up is citizens against virtually everything, which seemingly is is uh, is somewhat what we're seeing right now in this country. That's correct. For all the polarization, there's actually an odd agreement that not too many things in America should be allowed to change. And Trump himself campaigned on you know cementing in all entitlements. And whether or not one agrees with that, it's remarkable. That's almost eighty percent of the budget, and the two parties agree on that almost entirely. I'm guessing that, that uh, getting back to the technology for a second, that partly having that technology has put us in, as you mentioned, with Netflix and, and probably with other elements in, in the tech world as well. That's part of the reason why we've kind of kind of meshed together and, and liking so many different things rather than seeking out some of the more unique things and, and finding our own paths. That's right. You know, it's very easy to ignore the world when the Internet is fun and at the margin it's cheap and you can protest politically on your Facebook page or write a tweet and then just put it aside and get to the next thing. And I think that's uh, the world we have right now. And I don't think it's uh, done very well by our politics. And our governance, in my view, is increasingly dysfunctional. Well, and a lot of people would say that that also having that element to it with with social media specifically uh, has taken away our connectivity with each other in terms of just talking and conversing, which probably also plays a role in this. And where we live is a bigger problem. So these days, Democrats are much more likely to live next to other Democrats. And the same, of course, is true for Republicans. So the notion of people like not really knowing people who voted for the other candidate it's much more prevalent now than it was in the 1980s or 90s. So do you expect that that to continue and, and uh, actually even grow? You talk a little bit about uh, this new level of segregation that's actually happening here in the U.S. There's a lot of evidence that is worsening as we speak. It's mostly based on income. Can you afford to buy into the right. nice neighborhood? I don't think it's overt racism for the most part. There's some of that. But income maps into race. It maps into education. And it's making us a more divided nation. Is it your concern that that divide between the the one percenters and and, and the ninety nine percent is going to continue uh, to to be an issue because of kind of this path that, that that you just lay out? Well, I think there's a big divide. I wouldn't put it in terms of the one percent versus the ninety nine percent. I think it's highly educated people with good jobs who are at least fifteen or twenty percent versus others. Uh, you know, the top five percent and the top one percent, their perspectives are not really that different. We're joined by Tyler Cowan. The book is The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Even though you you talk about uh, the fact that some of this segregation is 
through financial means. There is a, an element of this, though, that is racial as well, correct? Uh, sure. There are some people who are, you know, extremely racist, and social media have allowed them to express that in very harmful and hurtful ways. And we're seeing that ugly side of American society coming back again or being remobilized. I'm not sure it ever went away, but it's much more open now. And it's a sign, you know, that how we had been doing things wasn't really working for the most disadvantaged members of our society. You take uh, some time and and you uh, have a chapter in the book uh, titled Why Americans Stop Creating. When you look at it from a historical perspective, what happened? I think America of the 20th century was built on the idea of powerful machines and factories and fossil fuels and manufacturing. And we created, you know, every possible innovation based on the combination of those ideas with electricity. So you get the radio, you get the car, you get the plane. We do phenomenally well with those. But we've somewhat exhausted those technologies. So cars each decade now, they get a little better, but they're still basically cars. If you took the Tyler Cowan, you know, of 1979 when I learned to drive and put him in a car today, I could work the whole thing without even having to think about it. <laughs> right. Uh, that's a little discouraging, actually, and it's not what our ancestors would have expected or what you read about in science fiction. So, uh, you know, I think slowly but surely we'll create a new technological paradigm in this country, how to do things that are not just machines and fossil fuels and how to make health care and education extremely productive again. Uh, but we're certainly not there now. Do we? Do you think that, that we are just right now kind of building ourselves in to want to to match with other people as as much as we possibly can, so that it it kind of eases the the potential uh, the, the potential struggles that we might have. That's right. So you get you know one law partner marrying another, and odds are they're quite happy. But still, in terms of overall social mobility, uh, maybe that's not ideal. People can match to the music they want to hear so more easily than before. Satellite radio is one way. I do it myself. Uh, but in terms of new musical creativity, I don't feel we're actually living in a wonderful time. It's a great time for the listener, not a good time for the creator. Why, why do you think so? Uh, I, I mean, the, the, I guess the, the music industry is, is one that seemingly still feels like it, it's, as, it's as varied a, as we've seen before. Well, maybe actually, maybe not as much because we, we've lost a little bit of that old, as I remember, I'm 50 years of age, that old rock and roll. And, and obviously the technology of it makes it more digital in terms of producing the music, correct? Well, say I'm at my satellite radio, I turn to Channel 26, a form of classic rock. I hear the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones. They're pretty good. They're still pretty good. Yeah. It's hard to beat them. So for new music to get a foothold, it's much tougher now than it was when you know that fantastic classic rock was created. And you see that in terms of how much money people spend on new music. It's way, way down. We're joined by Tyler Cowan. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Uh, we, during the during the recent election uh, cycle, and going back to the, the protesting that we've seen, uh, we here in Philadelphia saw people marching in support of Bernie Sanders during when the, the Democratic National Convention uh, happened. Uh, what happened that kind of took away... The, the 60s mentality, and, and it obviously, you know, we had a, a gap of, what, 35, 40 years where you just didn't have that as really a, a staple of the American being. 
I think around 1980, we decided that world was too chaotic, too volatile. We were going to end it. We were going to do everything possible to lower crime, no matter how many people we had to lock up or how much broken windows policing that would mean. And again, those were mostly positive developments. It's just once you're on a track to make everything safer, it's very hard to stop or to restrain yourself along the appropriate margins. And we've just gone way too far. And I think now we're locked into this mentality. And it's hard for us even to see how much we're committed to a kind of complacent embrace of the status quo, backed up by a lot of complaining. We observe our own complaining, think we're not complacent, uh, but we're fooling ourselves. You do, and we've alluded to, you talk a little bit about the the impact of of these problems on the political structure. What is the the potentially unfortunate future of of our political structure because of some of this kind of laissez-faire attitude? Well, the American political system works best when there's a growing pie and you can hand out something to everyone. It's not always pretty, but it, it does work. When you have more or less a fixed pie and you're fighting over the same pieces of that pie, things become more divisive. Ultimately, the quality of governance declines in terms of execution and competence and the public, you know, feeling that government is accountable to it. Uh, I think, you know, we're seeing all that already. So the crisis, you know, may be coming even more quickly than I had expected. So then uh, is it your expectation that we will see this just kind of multiply in the years to come? Uh, I think the next 10 years will be a very bumpy time, most of all politically. Uh, but also, the, you know, is there a national consensus over what we should do with our budget and our resources? I don't see it. And each side thinks the other side is not really legitimate. 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866. The problem with a lot of that is that I guess if we can't even agree on basic things in, in Congress on Capitol Hill then it's kind of uh, almost next to impossible to be able to, to push forward a lot of these new ideas, correct? And that's exactly what we're seeing. You see it with health care reform. The Republicans voted over 60 times to get rid of Obamacare. <clears throat> Whether or not you agree with that, they did. Yeah. And now they're in power, and basically they're not going to get rid of Obamacare. They want to you know, tweak it at the fringes. Again, whether you agree or disagree, it's a sign of how stuck we are that we can't imagine ways of doing things in a fundamentally different way. Benefits get locked in, and we have a big status quo bias. Quickly, let's go to the phones. Dan is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dan, go ahead. Hi. The point the author's making, I think a lot of it has to do with the government regulations. I tried to open a simple car dealership. I have a friend who has, uh, he tows cars. He has all the infrastructure for it. All we had to do was buy cars and find someone who wanted to buy them from us. Right. And it took us a year and a half and tens of thousands of dollars to get open just to meet the state regulations. The, the government is crushing business in this country. And as far as the cars go, the government wants to set the rules and then have self-driving cars follow right. the rules the government sets rather than having people invent self-driving cars and then the government make some rules maybe for safety or something like that. Dan, thanks for the call. Tyler, I'll let you comment quickly on that. I agree with that. The problem is it's hard to get rid of the great number of regulations we have. We literally don't have the time to get rid of them all. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.